Coming up next, Alan Shartok, Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, and me, Rex Smith, with a conversation about what's going on in the media. Yes, it's the Media Project. We'll talk about how the media is failing the public on the good news about jobs. We'll talk about what's going on in statehouse coverage around the country. Are we looking at it enough? Those topics and a lot more coming up in a conversation about the media next. such interesting people. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis by some veteran journalists, and we are hopeful that you'll find something enlightening out of all this. I am Rex Smith, here with Judy Patrick and Barbara Lombardo, and of course, Dr. Alan Shartok. Omnipresent. Omnipresent. That's right, Dr. Omni. Yeah, that's what you could be. It's kind of like the guy running for the Senate in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz, you know. You could be Dr. Uh, Dr. No. Dr. No. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, there's quite a controversy over there because the Philadelphia Inquirer refuses to use the title doctor for him. Oh, that's not the first time. I may be wrong, but I think I don't want to get myself into trouble, but a major New York newspaper, perhaps the most important newspaper in the world, didn't do it for a long time. Well, can you remind me, is he... A medical doctor, or does he have a PhD? I think he's an MD. No, no, no. They would have to oh, do no, it. Oh, he's an they? MD. I believe he's an MD. Yeah, yeah, he's an MD. But I think their reasoning is that it's unfair to his opponents if they give him a title and the others they don't. Well, wait a second. If he earned it, you know, that's part of his package, as we say. Say he's the, the PhD. Newspapers or any media outlets tend to have style guidelines, and the style is determines whether or not you use honorific titles. The New York Times, I think, has a style that they refer to people as Mister. Like you'll see, That's they right. don't. They had they it for years. They don't use mm-hmm. le- just last names. And and we at the Daily Gazette, when I worked there, we had a style guideline that said you would refer to doctors who are medical doctors, but. Other kinds of doctors did not get the honorary. That's piggeries. <laughs> it's that's absolutely just true. wrong. That is actually what the Times uh, style was. Yeah, that's right. Fact. But mm-hmm. can I just say, probably the Schenectady paper, um, which Judy, of course, was the head of, was probably just following along like lapdogs after the New York Times. Well, it was AP style as well. Oh, right? And we were an AP Everybody member, else. Associated Press. Yeah. No I, kidding. Is that what AP stands I, for? Well, you know, there might be some people out there that don't know that. 
Okay, I get it. Okay, but anyway, but this but is wait, Dr. Shartok. I, I, I have one more thing to say about oh, that. Oh, man, the PhD one. has a lot you, to say on this one. Do you have any idea how hard I had to work? How hard was it? Well, you had to get a master's degree, then you had to spend another five years getting a PhD. It's very I mean, hard to uh-huh. be at the bottom of your class, you know? <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> Let's go back to Oz. Yes, yeah. Dr. And Oz. Mm-hmm. Enough um, about me. <laughs> it does bother me a tad that they are intentionally not using somebody's title if it's an earned title, at least in the first reference to the person. Mm-hmm. But if it's in broadcast, you have to keep saying Dr. Oz, Dr. Oz. It's disturbing because it might be the right thing to do, such as Dr. Jill Biden. It is and a on brand the other hand, him, he is a bit wackadoodle. <laughs> well, that's a, a not really a, a, an issue for them to decide. The issue comes up because Donald Trump has endorsed Mr. Oz, Mehmet Oz, whatever we want to call him. And there is a question as to whether the media is overplaying this question of Donald Trump endorsements. And that's more important than whether we say Dr. Oz I or just so. Ozzy. Or a wizard of. Because <laughs> there's no one behind the curtain. <laughs> But, you know, the fact is, Donald Trump's endorsement is something these candidates grovel for. They want it terribly, and it it becomes a big deal, and people lobby him for it. Sean Hannity, the Fox News host, supposedly was really pushing Trump, lobbying him to endorse Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. But, you know, if the media plays a big deal out of this, you would think it would matter. But increasingly, there are signs that it doesn't really make a difference. Yes, there's more nuance to it than whether the person is endorsed by Trump or not because there are candidates who are quite Trump-like in their beliefs and far-right in their beliefs, and they may not be endorsed by Trump, but it's up to the media to make sure that we're telling people what their core beliefs are. And they might find that the Republican candidates endorsed by Trump are not the types of people you would want in office or otherwise. And I think this is an issue that broadcast media focuses more on. I think they're setting the stage because they want to do the story on election eve that, oh, the Trump endorsement did not work or the Trump endorsement does work. This illustrates the power or the lack of power of Trump. From my perspective, I've never have given much credence to endorsements. I mean, labor union endorsements used to be a big deal, but other kinds of endorsements, candidates typically trot them out with regularity, trying to get a little bit of news out there for themselves. Uh Aha, but what about the editorial endorsements? Do they work? We never, on the editorial board that I was a part of at the Times Union, we never thought that we had great influence. But you did endorse anyway. Yeah. We thought that was important for people to know we have special insight. We actually do, as journalists, get to see people up close. We get to do things that other ordinary citizens don't. And so it has traditionally been a prerogative of newspapers to make endorsements. Who gave them that prerogative? The people who invested in the newspapers and oh, built them. The, the publisher. In Saratoga Springs, the Republican chair used to say that an endorsement from the Saratogian was probably worth about 200 votes. Hmm. And that it also could be valuable because sometimes whoever the Saratogian endorsed, he and his cohorts would say, now you know to vote against that person. Right. (laughs) Right. And it should be noted that every newspaper in the United States, except for a handful, did not endorse Donald Trump in his first run for president. And he won anyway. Yeah. 
Right. There was not a major newspaper except for the... Uh, there's an Alaska there was one, paper. Yeah, and, but uh, not a major... There was one major city newspaper, even the Chicago Tribune, which had Vegas. never endorsed a Democrat, decided to endorse the um, marijuana mm. party candidate. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, rather than endorse Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. So the question remains of how much do we want to emphasize, whether it's print or broadcast, the fact that Trump does or doesn't endorse a certain candidates. How big a deal are we supposed to make out of that, we being the you know, media overall? Well, it's sort of a dog whistle, isn't it, to some degree, that a lot of people are waiting to see who their person in politics, and that's Donald Trump for about at least a third of the country. You know, the, the value of an endorsement, really, whether it brings anybody with you, the value of a labor endorsement was yeah. that it would give you bodies to sure. make phone calls, you know, and phone banks and stuff, and it brings money. And in a Democratic primary in the state of New York, mm. a labor endorsement makes a huge amount of difference. So that's worth reporting, worth writing about, but that's not the way that most journalists do it. They just write it as who's popular and who's and not. And in the past, that labor endorsement also brought with it the specter of some people who were connected to organized crime in one way or another. Mm. So, you know, in other words, it sounded good that you were endorsed by organized labor, but there have been some unhealthy organized labor groups. I just, All right, folks. I just, still, <laughs> I just still think that the heavy focus on whether or not Trump is going to endorse a candidate or not continues to give the former president, Donald Trump, too much power, and it continues to build his celebrity status. Anyway, the issue of endorsements comes up because it sometimes is a way to make people aware of candidates or of offices that they don't pay a lot of attention to, down ballot races, for example. But there is a job that people didn't pay much attention to until just the last few days, and that is Lieutenant Governor of New York. Yeah. And I think an awful lot of people probably were stunned. My former newspaper, The Times Union, had a huge sans serif fat headline that says, Benjamin resigns. And I think probably 90% of the readers looking at that said, who Benjamin? No, I, I think 95%. 95%. <laughs> and the public has no idea who the lieutenant governor of the state is. In this case, of course, that's somewhat understandable because this guy was appointed when the lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, ascended to the governorship with a resignation of... Yeah, but did they tell the truth about what's really going on? So, for example, we know at, at the cost of some pushback from listeners that part of the determination of how you choose a lieutenant governor is that you want to make sure that they are of a diverse group of people. So, in other words, if you have a white person running for governor, you want to have somebody who is of color running for lieutenant governor. And yet you have to be very careful because do you ever see in a newspaper she chose him because he was black? Yeah, it's Not a very sure. difficult thing because, you know, she's a white woman from Buffalo, from upstate. Didn't she therefore need an African-American from New York City? Absolutely. You know why that we know why he's there. But you can't say that in the paper you're saying? I think it's very seldom that you would see anybody saying that. I can't pull out an article or a broadcast tape at this moment. Well, you but have I bet to. I could if yeah. I had to do homework for the next time is that. That was certainly discussed in the media. It was discussed from a political point of view who was going to be chosen, who was chosen, and why. It was to bring that mm -hmm. diversity. That wasn't a, an I'm unspoken a, secret. How we, can it be an unspoken secret? It, it, wasn't, <laughs> it was neither unspoken nor secret. <laughs> <laughs> but the wording, the way that we phrase it, we are careful about so as to not be insensitive to the reality of the fact that we live in a diverse society that doesn't always reflect that in uh, the politics. Well, right? we say that sitting here. 
Mm -hmm. But in the newspaper articles which describe the team, do people make much of the fact that somebody is diverse? Do you understand my point? I mean, it depends. It's an interesting issue because Brian Benjamin was a very talented politician, some would say. That isn't all some would say. Well, yes, he's also uh, now an, an accused crook, but he certainly ascended quickly, and uh, he was a charismatic guy, and people were impressed by him, and he had backers. In politics, you know, so much of it is personality, and so much of it is who is supporting you. He has a long-time political established backers. Hazel Dukes, the head of the NAACP of New York, for example, was his great supporter. And so when you have that kind of backing, when you have a good personality, you move forward. And the media's coverage needs to reflect the total person. But, you know, the fact that he had these questions on his resume, questions about how he had raised funds, that was well known before he was appointed. It was pointed out in the stories at the time. I mean, coverage of him when Kathy Hochul appointed him made note of the fact that there were questions about his campaign fundraising. And, and I think that's what made this a bigger story than it might have been. I mean, the idea of the lieutenant governor being indicted is big enough, but it's not a powerful position. Again, very few people in New York say even know who he is, but it does reflect on this new governor, and there's been such turnover in the governor's office in the last year or so that that also makes that story go above the fold. Typically, I mean, in, in previous years, maybe uh, the arrest of a lieutenant governor wouldn't have been, I think this just ratcheted it up a notch. And again, on a day when you had the subway shooting, this is sure. second place to that. There is, though, a general trend. We've seen a slight reversal recently, but, you know, the news media have not paid as much attention Could. to uh, state government coverage. Could I ask all of you a question? How did Kathy Hochul become the governor? Right. I think what you're alluding to, I if am. I could read your mind, is when some on the panel said that that was not a very powerful position. It isn't a very powerful it position is it? on a day-to-day -day basis. Tell that to Harry Truman. Suddenly, I'll try to talk to him. It seems like it's suddenly be very now. important when there's but, no governor. But it's fairly rare. And he and the yeah. lieutenant governor, I mean, what does he actually do? What did Kathy Hochul do as lieutenant governor? Well, what interested me in the coverage of his resignation is there seems to be more people not so much interested in, oh, it's another crooked politician, but the question of how how could the vetting process have proceeded with Hochul not being more aware that she was going to be stepping into a mess? And you know, know that's true because she is now having to defend the choice and her criteria for appointing him. And are we and in the media then, since this is a media program, are we focusing too much on that? Did we focus on that at the time that she did it? Did anybody write at the time, well, Hochul isn't doing very much by way of vetting, is she? It suddenly becomes an issue after the fact when he has been arrested. But did we not pay much attention? And does this go to the question that I think I'm trying to get to, which is the, the notion of there not being much attention to state government news these days? You well, know, That's certainly true. There certainly has been a drop, although there's a new study that says that in the last few years, there are slightly more state house reporters, but there has been a trend of more people covering state houses doing it part time, along with other responsibilities. And part time typically means superficial coverage. And mm -hmm. so you're going to get, you know, some coverage of the passage of the budget or what's going on with bail reform. But when it comes to keeping government honest, you really need accountability journalism. That takes time. 
And I, I don't see any indication that, that that's on the rise. There's some of it out there, but there's half or a third of what there was 10 years ago. It's a hard thing to do because it's a chicken and egg thing. Uh, do people not pay attention to what is going on in state government because there isn't enough coverage or do you not cover it because people aren't that interested? When I first came to this community in the late 80s during the administration of Mario Cuomo, I was the chief of the largest bureau in the state capitol for Newsday, the state capitol bureau. During the legislative session, we had six journalists in our bureau, even more than the AP, certainly more than the New York Times. And people forget that, but that was just part of the commitment that Newsday made to its readers. We will cover state government like nobody else does. And that's no longer the case, you know. It's not a big bureau anymore. Everybody has cut back. You know, Rex, you, you just tweaked something in my, uh -oh. uh, in my mind. <laughs> but you know. The Wayback Machine is coming. <laughs> if you go to the New York Times Index every morning, right? yes, sir. and you want to see, because those of us around the table here are often interested in New York news, and you want to see what went on in New York, you're not going to see New York in the first tier of stories that they list. You have to go down to the next tier to find New York news. Now, that's got to tell you something about the way that the New York Times sees news priorities. Well, it's an international news organization. The Times is a little different from everybody else. You know, sure, the phone is ringing. It's the New York Times that want no, you. No, but I, so that's my analysis. What's yours? Why do you think? It's because they're uh, stupid? No, they have 8 million readers, and not many of them live in the state of New York. So, And I think a lot of the readers are in New York City, and I think the interest from New York City residents in general New York State news is less than it is in the city. As a political scientist, I want to take a certain amount of issue with Go you, um, Judy. <laughs> Think about that for a second. We know that the city is a creature of the state, right? In other words, the top power in politics is the state because the state... I don't think that's how New York has so. Uh, <laughs> I don't think the mayor exactly, of the city sees it that way. That's exactly the point. Uh -huh. That's exactly the point. The fact that it is reduced to the second tier, I think, is probably not right because they are so powerful, the, the legislature, uh, although they act like miscreants sometimes. The survey they talked about coverage at the state houses around the country was a disturbing more than hopeful, I thought, because Thanks. although it's said that 31 states were increasing their state house coverage with more bodies or more person power on it, that 16 states were actually reducing it. And um, as you noted, Rex, that a lot of it is part-time people, and we, we don't really know what they're covering. And we also don't know what is it that they're covering about state news and how are they choosing what to write about. You don't want a bunch of sheep just parroting whatever the people in power are saying. You want people looking into issues. There's a lot of things happening on the state level. Abortion, uh, voter rights. Yes, there's really tons crucial issues. Of, yes, and we want to know if we live in that state, we should want to know. And as a nationally, we should want to know what the trends are in the different states. And not only that, when you survey people and say, now, who exactly is Andrea Stewart Cousins? And who is, exactly is Carl Hasty? And who is the governor of New York? Well, I think that people will know more about who the governor of New York is than those powerful, very powerful leaders of the legislative houses. Right. I think that's been the case for many, many years that people may not know the players, but they might know the issues. Hmm. Well, those issues that you're talking about, the high profile issues that are being discussed in basically states that are run by Republican governors, 
you know, attacking gay people in Florida and Texas. That's my analysis of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they would say that's not the case, but I think you can't look at the don't say gay bill in Florida and not say that that is a covert effort by the Republican Party to shame people who are gay in this society. Mm -hmm. right. And that would be the analysis that I'd be writing every day if I were running a newspaper in Florida. But those issues are big. But I tell you, sometimes when I see a headline on a story about New York State politics, I look at the fine aggregation site Empire Page New York, and I look at that and I say, I know that that story came from the Times Union because, and I, you know, I'm no longer affiliated with the Times Union, but I will still say that their watchdog coverage of state government is unparalleled. And I know that certain stories about how Kathy Hochul has uh, used state resources to build her campaign resources, uh, or that to build kind of stadium thing. in Buffalo. Absolutely. I think all of that stuff is fundamentally found because of great watchdog reporting that is done more by the local newspaper in Albany than by any other outfit. And I wonder so, if that's true, Rex, in every other state. In other uh, words, if the state capital newspaper is the main source for this information. I would suspect that you're correct. I learned that becoming an editor in the capital region and then meeting editors from around the state, that there was a much keener interest in state news from those of us at media outlets in the capital district than anywhere else, even though we're all affected by things that those legislators and executive branches were well, Judy, doing. Well, Judy, you were the editor of a very powerful paper, the Schenectady paper. Is that true? Do you think that you guys were more on the case than the average well, newspaper? Well, you know, you would see coverage from Buffalo. The Buffalo News covered uh, state politics pretty well, and the Gannett papers did as well. But you also have to think, if you're in the Capital District, it's a big workforce issue for us, too, yes. because right. so many of our readers actually worked for the state, so That's we're actually right covering their employer. That was Judy Patrick, who was the editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady. Barbara Lombardo, executive editor of the Saratogan and the Record of Troy. Alan Shartok is the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, and I'm Rex Smith of the Upstate American. Da -da 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 -da, www.upstateamerican.com. Thank you very much. Right to you, bye. Plug in here. Well, you know, that's my payment for this. So I'm always <laughs> grateful for that. Let's talk about the national media because uh, Margaret Sullivan, the fine media columnist for the Washington Post, formerly ombudsperson of the New York Times, and uh, no, she was called public editor, and formerly the editor of the Buffalo News, aforementioned. Margaret Sullivan has put out a column saying the media is failing the public on good news about jobs, pointing out how much we are in the media writing and talking about inflation by comparison to the fact that the economy is actually doing great. The unemployment rate is less than 4%. There are so many hundreds of thousands of jobs being created every month. The stock market continues to be strong, actually. The economy, in fact, is in good shape, except for the fact that well, there is inflation, and there are many factors leading to that. But you wouldn't know it, Margaret mm. Sullivan says, by looking at media coverage. What should we do about this? And what? you wouldn't know it, if I may interject there, yeah. Rex. You also wouldn't know it looking at Joe Biden's uh, approval ratings, which are extraordinarily low. And one thinks that one may have something to do with the other. You know, in, in this respect, some experience helps because we probably all remember back in the days in the late 70s, early 80s, when unemployment in, in this capital region of New York State, I covered counties where the unemployment rate was 14 or 15 percent. Yeah. I covered stories 
about rising gas prices where people had to stand in line to fill up their gas. I covered stories about interest rates for home mortgages being in, in you know, 10, 11 percent. So that perspective makes me look at the stories differently. But the economy is has always been difficult for the news media to cover. You need almost need specialists because you rely on the flax to give you the information. And a lot of your standard general reporters don't cover the economy on a regular basis. No, I think it's that journalists tend to be just afraid of numbers, uh, don't you think? Because <laughs> uh, there are lots of experts out there in the economy, lots of people you can talk to, like any other topic. But I think, you know, it's a lot easier to write about other stories. Well, the three of you are editors of major newspapers, so the question I have for you is, how important was the hiring you did so that you could bring people on board who really could explain the economics of every one of these situations? Oh, that's a super plus if you're able to find somebody who can do that. <laughs> who can so do you, arithmetic? At the Saratoga, you know, very difficult. You with the larger papers, I mean, you've had over the years excellent business writers at the uh, Times Union, especially trying to cover complex issues and, and doing a good job at it. But day in and day out, it's not an area that we're well-versed in or confident in. Why is that? Because numbers are hard. Yeah. No, well, you know. <laughs> My point exactly. Well, you know, politics is easy, frankly, and, yeah. and I would try to push against hiring political writers, though I was one myself. The problem is that it's easy to cover people. It's like It's like a sports team, the way most people cover it, and these politicians are always wanting to talk to you. They're trying to manipulate you, but they're trying to get you until they're like Brian Benjamin caught. But numbers, you have to really dig it yourself. You tend to have to really go for it. So if you find somebody who is economically literate, boy, you grab that person. The New York Times used to have an approach. I was a friend of a managing editor some years ago who used to say he would assign bright young reporters to the business desk because they needed to learn how to do this kind of thing, even if they didn't want to be business writers. And so I would do that with people. For example, the Times Union's fine metropolitan columnist, Chris Churchill. When I first hired him at the Times Union, I put him on the business desk and he spent several years as a business reporter and I think it made him an even better reporter so there you go for a long time papers had really hefty business desks and, and there was a really strong business coverage I think that along with everything else has eroded over the years and it's something we really need again it's hard to put it in context it's hard to explain it so people really have a good grasp of what's going on numbers can be useless unless you have context Mm -hmm. I would point out, of course, that Paul Krugman of the New York Times won a Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize for economics, absolutely. It's almost as though he's a columnist on the side, but it's a brilliant column. Right, but I read it regularly. I still am unsure about where we are with the economy. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. That's well, good, and that's, and that gets back to how difficult it is to not just to write about, to understand. It really takes the commitment from the leadership of uh, the media entities, whatever they are, to say we need to be able to dig and explain and, yes, and put the things in context um, each time. But it's a leadership decision to say that if we're writing about inflation, we have to just not mention job growth and wage growth in passing. Both of those things are true. And to only focus on how prices are rising and not focus on how many more people are employed and how much wages have gone up, that is a leadership decision that is a failure on the part of editors. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we need to, to keep that up. And we need to not look at the economic issue as only a political story. It's not just, well, Joe Biden is up or Joe Biden is down based upon this. It really is how are people's lives being affected by the economy? Is everybody able to go to work? And, exactly. you know, looking at how these things occurred, it is not all a Biden issue, nor can he fix it all. Well, that's right. And if the gas prices are high, he's going to suffer in his opinion polls. Well, there you go. That is the end of our time at this point. Oh, I'm, no. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, isn't it a shame? I feel bad about that. <laughs> Thank you, this Alan. This program will be an hour. <laughs> no! <laughs> Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to David Gustina, our producer, and to you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project. Now, newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now, newspaper men are such interesting people. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Have worries for publishers must go To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling Advertising, get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.